That gorgeous song comes from a musical called Man of La Mancha, which some of you may be familiar with, uh, based on the life of Miguel Cervantes and his character uh, Don Quixote. Um, it's, a, it's a story that many people have been captivated with. So let me tell you just a little bit of this story. Apparently, about 500 years ago or so, there was a man who is said to be a minor noble. In other words, he had some kind of land, but was not very rich. And Cervantes says that he was uh, growing older. He was in his 50s. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Serious problem. But the health care wasn't as good, so maybe that was. Uh... So apparently, Don Quixote loved to read. He loved books. And he had accumulated a library in his house, mostly stories of, of chivalry, of knights who go out and right wrongs and bring justice to the world, and also who fall in love with uh, women and court them and uh, engage in this whole courtly love tradition. And he just loved these books. And he apparently would stay up late every night, uh, long into the night, reading his books, and then trying to do some work during the day to the extent that he rarely slept. And according to the story, he began gradually to sort of lose touch with what we would call sort of everyday reality and started to think all the time about these stories and about the knights that would go out and change the world and, you know, redress grievances and bring justice where it needed to be. And so he decided that's what he needed to do. And so the story says that there actually happened to be an old suit of armor somewhere in a shed somewhere that belonged to his family. So he put this old clunky uh, suit of armor on and then he had, there was no helmet, so he had to kind of create a helmet and he looked kind of ridiculous. And he had an old horse that was, that was really a kind of a, uh, not ready for much of anything but the pasture, this old horse called Rocinante. And so he saddles up Rocinante, puts on all of his armor, and he goes off into the world to right the wrongs and to find love. Those are his two big goals. So off he goes and uh, to be honest, it doesn't go very well. And if you're familiar with the story, you probably know some of the things that happened to him. The first time he goes out, he finds this young man tied to a tree, probably a teenager tied to a tree, and he's being whipped by his master, I mean, in a really harsh and vicious way. Don Quixote comes up and he manages to get the master to untie this kid, and he feels so... Uh, good about it. You know, he's righted his first wrong and then he rides off on Rocinante and as he rides up, off the master ties that kid back up to the tree and just starts wailing on him again. So that didn't go too well. And then the second one, he meets up with a caravan of merchants 
And he says that he demands that they uh, swear that Don Quixote's love, the Lady Dulcinea, who's actually uh, kind of a waitress kind of person, uh, that they'll swear that she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And they won't do it. They are not interested in doing that. And finally, one of those people in the caravan beats him up thoroughly. And that's the end of the first adventure. So he goes home. And when he goes home, he's wounded and broken. And he falls into a deep sleep. And while he's asleep, his niece and the priest and the barber and his housekeeper burn his library. They burn the books. Because they believe that this is, you know, what's causing the problem. And so they want to get rid of the problem. They burn his library with particular emphasis on these uh, chivalry books. Well, this doesn't work and... He goes off again, and this time he has a new squire named Sancho Panza, who's also a big figure in literature. He's the practical one, and they have all these dialogues about practicality. And they go off, and the first adventure they have, which probably everyone or most people have heard of, is they encounter some windmills. And Don Quixote is convinced that these windmills are evil giants. And he says he's going to attack them. And he does, and there are all kinds of different artists' renderings of Don Quixote attacking the windmills. And that doesn't go well either, and he gets caught in one of the blades of the windmill, and his lance gets caught, and he goes up and he's spinning around until finally he is unceremoniously dumped on the ground. And Don Quixote says, this is due to some magician who has enchanted these windmills. So he, they, that becomes a kind of theme of why he thinks things are going wrong. It's the enchanter, uh, Festine, the magician, who is enchanting everything. And Anyway, he has all kinds of adventures. None of them go particularly well, but it's, he never loses sight of this goal to bring... He's, he doesn't get discouraged. <laughs> I think I would get discouraged. Well, I, this is the story of Don Quixote. I have my uh, lovely Spanish edition down here you can look at with all kinds of gorgeous uh, artwork in it if you want to take a look at that. It's, it's one of the great stories of world literature. It's only about seven or 800 pages, so you <laughs> should have no trouble reading that. So recently, I got intrigued. I don't know exactly how this happened, but I got intrigued with the idea that on one of his adventures, Don Quixote meets up with the World Wide Web. He meets, he has, he has an adventure with the internet. So as I said, I'm not sure I got on that track. But I'm trying to imagine how this would happen. It wouldn't happen like the windmills. It probably wouldn't be out in the country. But one of the things he does on his adventures, he usually stays in an inn somewhere. And often people in those inns had to share rooms. So he would meet up with various people in the inn. So I have this idea that Don Quixote is in one of these dark, dingy upper rooms of some inn somewhere, sharing a room with some guy. And this person has a kind of flat, uh, object that opens up 
somehow, some magical way, this object opens up and then starts pouring out all kinds of pictures and images and, you know, things are just flashing on that screen and it's in color and Don Quixote is just amazed about what that is and he immediately jumps to the conclusion that this is also the work of a magician which I think is pretty reasonable given the setting 500 years ago. And so he is extraordinarily suspicious of this and I think he's going to attack it in some way but I haven't figured out how he's gonna do that yet. So I don't know exactly where that story goes except that I want to pursue for a moment Don Quixote's theory that this is the work of a magician and that it is dangerous. I want to pursue his line of thought there for a minute, or what I think his line of thought might be, and see if there's anything to be said for that, and then I'll come back later and talk about how wonderful it is too, because there are various sides. So, what, what arguments might we make in favor of Don Quixote's idea that the internet is a magical and somewhat sinister thing. That's what he thinks. Um, I, I want to list, I want to just tell you a couple things and this is my personal analysis. If you're new here today, one of the great things about this church is you don't have to agree with the minister. Isn't that a good thing? I usually agree with the minister, but other people. <laughs> So it's my personal analysis. All right, the first thing I want to say is I agree with Don Quixote that this thing, whatever it might be, has a kind of hypnotic effect on people. I want to say that I think that's true. It does have a kind of hypnotic effect. And I think we see that uh, all the time. And, you know, I've had this experience myself where I just start doing this thing that's called surfing, although it has nothing to do with water or anything like that. And I just go away somewhere. I just wander and I go to this and then the next picture. You know, as soon as I see a picture, there's six or seven other pictures that come up and all you gotta do is click on that and you can go to the next one and then you watch that and then there's 10 more that come up. And so anyway, I do think that uh, the internet has a kind of hypnotic effect, so I'm, I'm in favor of that idea. Um, I also think that part of the enchantment of this strange and magical screen is that in some ways it has a deteriorating effect on face-to-face -face human relationships. So that, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, all of us have seen a cartoon somewhere of somebody walking down the street with their iPhone in front of them a, a foot from running into the pole. Because they're more, or any of us could be more enticed by uh, those images than we are about watching where we are and who we're with and what's going on around us. We could actually, uh, we had this experience recently, we could be Watching our, we could have, uh, watching our GPS so intently that we don't see the sign for the turnoff. 
So I'm talking about those kind of experiences. So the internet, in a way, seems to distract us from concrete, physical, three-dimensional reality. And we've also seen the, you know, uh, pictures or cartoons of four or five friends sitting around a table in a coffee shop. But they're not paying any attention to each other. They're all, they're all on their phones. And I, I do this too, so it's, I'm not tr- claiming to be uh, more pure or anything like that. There is a study, by the way, there's one study at least, where the conclusion of the study was that if people are sitting together in a group and if anyone has a smartphone that is visible, like on the table, for example, that that reduces the feelings of empathy in the group. Just if it's on the table or in somebody's hand. Think about that one for a while. Okay. But the serious charges of sorcery or or, uh, magic have to do with the serious things that could be done In other words, if this is a giant of some sort or a monster of some sort, what are the the scary powers of this monster? Does it have any scary dimensions or is it all benevolent? Is it just wonderful pictures? Uh, So does it have any truly dangerous attributes? So I think it does. And so let me say a couple of those, and you know all this stuff already anyway, but certainly this whole phenomenon of hacking is, is very real and part of our lives and uh, private information and private accounts can be taken over by other people. I've personally had my Twitter account hacked by some people who apparently live in Turkey because I didn't use my Twitter account for a long time and when I came back there were hundreds of tweets flying around uh, in, Turkish, in the Turkish language. So I've been through that experience. It's a weird feeling, a very weird feeling. But what it is really more serious is that there really is such a thing as cyber warfare. And as a matter of fact, it seems overwhelmingly likely that there was cyber warfare conducted on the United States during the last presidential election. It was done. It happened. And it had some effect on the election. I don't think anybody can say exactly what that effect was. But we know that the people who did the cyber attacking had a preferred candidate. And we also know that that candidate won. So we don't know necessarily that one can draw an exact uh, cause and effect between those, but there are some effects. So we know that there are serious weapons in that little two-dimensional object that opens up and shows the pretty pictures. There are serious, there, there are weapons in there. And another dimension of this that is not exactly a weapon, but also it was visible in the election and is still visible now, is that the candidate who happened to be the one that the Russians favored, that particular candidate used 
a facility of the internet called Twitter to be his primary mode of communication to the American people. That became the way he communicated. And it was extraordinarily successful. It worked really well for that candidate. And what it also did was to change the nature of political discourse in our society. It overthrew years of tradition of political discourse that involves making policy statements about things and then being questioned on them. And that went away. That kind of dialogue that we have where we get to know what somebody believes and what they uh, are committed to did not really happen because through the internet uh, one candidate figured out how to just make short blasts of bombastic statements and not have to ever discuss them. This worked too. And, like I said, you don't have to agree, but I think that's one of the reasons why we have that particular person in the White House, is because the tradition of dialogue was bypassed. And there was no dialogue, and there still isn't, as a matter of fact. And so traditions like press conferences where people ask questions and then... Uh, they answer and then we say, well, yeah, but what about this? And ask a follow-up question and have, you know, serious dialogue about ideas. That doesn't exist right now in our country. And that is dangerous. That is truly dangerous. So that's a, another kind of weapon that was used because of a new piece of technology. And, you know, ethics is always running behind technology. Ethics cannot move fast enough to keep up with the problems that tech... Because technology is just going to go at whatever speed people can invent things. And the ethics part of it is a longer, slower process. And so the ethics people are always running behind. And by the time you figure out what to do about something, maybe somebody's already been elected to something. Or done something else that might be problematic. So... Uh, I think the Twitter thing is another thing that is a danger. Not that Twitter itself is a danger, but the way it changes our whole idea of what it means to discuss something. We don't have much good discussion. Okay. There's a wonderful book called On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder, and I'm going to teach a course on that book starting in October. It's called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And he says a lot of fascinating things, but one of the things he says is that if you want to be part of the resistance, you should read more books. And he also says, I, I, I don't think you're going to like this, but he also says use the internet less and read books more. Now that's kind of a crazy thing to say because he's a professor and I know he uses internet probably four or five hours a day or his assistants do looking up stuff. But here's what I think he's saying. And by the way, he wrote this book right after the election because he wanted to put something out quickly. 
He's an expert on European history and he's an expert on how democracies can devolve into tyrannies. That's his field of expertise. What are, what are the characteristics, what are the steps in that happening? So I think what he's saying in this little uh, thing about books and the internet, I think what he's saying is that to have a democracy, you have to have a real exchange of ideas. You have to talk about things. You have to be able to, to have questions and answers. And you have to have accountability. You have to be able to ask a candidate what they believe and then get an answer. And then ask them why they think that's the right thing to do. And I think what he's saying is that the tools, the electronic tools right now, are favoring, they're giving openings to people who do not wish to do that. And they can get away with it by things like using Twitter instead, and then by constantly beating up on the traditional forms of communication and saying that they're liars. And you can get away with that right now because of the magic in that little thing. That, that's not that the, 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 it's not that that thing is evil, but it can be used in that way. And so we have a, I think what he's saying is that there is a lack of genuine dialogue in our country that will not, if not corrected, will damage democracy seriously. Seriously. One of the things that Snyder says in his book is if you think we are smarter and better than other people in other countries who lost their democracies, we are wrong and naive. We are not smarter and better than they are. We have to be on the, on the case. One of the interesting things about our current uh, occupant of the White House, as you say in the South, bless his heart, is that he proudly proclaims that he doesn't read books. Now this is a fascinating thing because when you read a book, you are involved in the world of ideas at some depth. Depends on the book, but at some depth. And it's not necessary to do that in our culture right now to be influential. You don't have to interact at depth with ideas. Uh, so this makes a kind of weird sense that he would say that. The internet has so many possibilities, it is about breadth of information. It, far and wide, anything you want to know, anywhere, anywhere. It is stunningly broad. But its content often lacks depth. And that's not because you can't do depth on the internet. You can, but our psychological state right now is favored towards quick, quick, short answers. And then we'll move on to the next thing. Bing, that's done. So what we need is depth of thought and depth of meaning and principles and values. It is fascinating, by the way, that a Republican senator named Jeff Flake, who has emerged as one of the critics of the administration, in order to take that position, did a strange thing. He wrote a book. 
He wrote a book about why he doesn't agree with some of the things about the current administration. So what does that mean? It means in a sense that if you want to seriously develop ideas, books are one good way to do that. It's almost like saying, this is not just a tweet with a life cycle of 24 hours. I'm writing some ideas I want to have last and I'm willing to be in, you know, questioned on them and I'm willing to defend an argument. I'm willing to try to make sense out of this and have a real dialogue. And of course you can put your book on the internet too, that's fine. Snyder also warns about the use of technology to control human thought. We live in such a wonderful free country, you don't think we should have to worry about that. But 60 Minutes recently did a study, you may have seen it about a month ago, they did a segment on how Facebook, uh, I don't use Facebook by the way, but I'm a hypocrite because my wife does and I look at everything she <laughs> So I have no great, uh, I'm not making a protest here. Thank you, dear. So I live a dual life here, actually. 60 Minutes did a, a segment on how Facebook employs uh, brain chemists to figure out what they can put on the screen that will make you want to look more times during the day. That's, that's what they do. My sermon has got to end here. The candles are burning. So, yeah, we don't want to burn down the church. So, there are people with very sophisticated knowledge working to figure out how to get us to look at certain things as often as possible. That's their job. All right. So, we need to pay attention to that. We really do. Newspapers are struggling to survive, but it's also true that some of the best investigative reporting is done by newspapers. Right now, the New York Times and the Washington Post are leading the way. We don't want them to go out of business. That's not a good thing for the United States, for newspapers to go out of business. They are trying to hold people accountable. There are a bunch of movies and stories like Fahrenheit 451, The Matrix, 2001, A Space Odyssey, 1984, all about this theme of technology taking, used as a means of control. All right. What about the good stuff? All right, I got to say the good stuff. I, this is a wonderful, powerful thing. We can share pictures of our kids. We can share feelings and ideas. We can do research astronomically more rapidly than before. We can organize against repression. The internet was used tremendously in the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring didn't produce any democracies either. But it has that potential. We can present our thoughts to the world. We can conduct commerce more efficiently than ever before. We can invent all kinds of things that never existed. We can even sometimes find the love of our life. These are wonderful, beautiful things. And so, 
It is not my thought today to say somehow that the internet shouldn't exist. It's not even a, it's a ridiculous thing. It's, it's not desirable and it's not possible. It's not going to go away. It's going to become more important. It's going to accelerate. That's what's going to happen. Don Quixote will not overthrow this particular magician. He couldn't even overthrow the windmill. So it's, that's not what is needed. What I think is needed is a kind of balance. The web is our new way of life. But it has a tendency to kind of eat up other dimensions of life. That's what it does. It kind of eats things up. And some of these, part, these experiences that are somewhat threatened are important. Face-to-face -face relationships with people and other creatures, walks in the woods, listening to the birds, playing physical non-computer games, really exploring the world of ideas, which you can do on the internet if you want to, but that's not our tendency to do that. These are parts of our lives that we can't let fall away. The, the real dialogue of ideas back and forth between people so that they're accountable, we can't give that up. That becomes a tool of oppression if that goes away. We need to develop ethics that can keep up with the lightning speed of technical advances. We have to recommit to things like truth and justice and honesty and democracy and love. They have to be more important than anything else beyond how we pursue them. The internet is like fire. When human beings got fire, it changed the world. So many things became possible that couldn't be done before. All kinds of amazing things. But fire can also burn your house down. So it's powerful and it's wonderful but it has to be treated as serious. And there are threats there. Of course, Don Quixote does not win, but we still love his effort, his integrity, his passion. Don Quixote has a piece of the puzzle that can save our democratic dream of reality. This love of justice and this deep desire to live with love, which he wants more than anything, and with this, this genuineness and this integrity that he has, even though he's not very good at what he tries to do. We live in perilous times. We are led by some cunning enchanters who care nothing often about truth, justice, or compassion. And some of them will use any tool available to take control. It is time for all of us to put on our armor. Even if it is homemade, even if it is simple, it is time to saddle up our steeds and ride out to fight for justice and love.